Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. It's Thanksgiving, and we all know what that means. Football! And nothing goes better with football than turkey and betting. BetOnline has you covered all holiday season with more props, odds, and lines than ever before. Head to the new updated desktop or mobile website to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus with the promo code BLEAV. B-L-E-A-V. BetOnline is the fastest and easiest way to bet all your favorite sports. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However and whenever it is, you may be listening. Thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the Take It easy podcast live on the believe podcast network except it isn't live because it's a podcast welcome in everybody it is november 23rd according to my count time is flying on by it's crazy that two weeks ago we were imposing our embargo on the chicago bears uh, speaking of Monday Night Football from two weeks ago, um, did anyone watch the Giants and Buccaneers game? Anyone at all? Just saw the score, 30-10. to 10. Looks like Tom Brady didn't play that well, played about average. Played a Carson Wentz game, a classic Carson Wentz game from Tom Brady, and that was still enough to win by 20 against the New York Giants. Told you all weeks ago, you had the chance to fire Judge and Gettleman when you had, when, weeks ago. You got another chance here. If you want to do it, start fumigating the place. Let Jason Garrett prove himself as the interim coach. You got a chance right now to start fumigating the place. Giants, by the way, finished with a uh, whopping total. (laughs) This is wonderful. A whopping 66 rushing yards, 16 of which came on an end-around play to John Ross. So to running backs and Daniel Jones, because Daniel Jones is obviously part of the running system for them, that is a total of... 50 rushing yards against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Uh, That is a truly, truly putrid performance for the New York Giants. Uh, That franchise is so bad. So bad in New York. So bad. Anyways, I just wanted to get that out here. We've got a fun podcast with our boy Juju Talk Sports over at the Slump Buster. Uh, This was the Slump Buster podcast we did last week. We record the Slump Buster podcast every single week, and you can subscribe to that on YouTube or on Apple Podcasts with the link in the description to today's episode because this is a really, really fun thing that we do. It's just as popular as Take It Easy. Like, there is a great following over there on the YouTube, close to 2,000 subscribers, 30-plus listeners on every episode, and YouTube videos when Texas loses that go viral for 15,000 views and reaction stuff. There's there's content for everyone there. So I would, uh, I would encourage you all to please go subscribe to the YouTube so we can hit 2,000 subscribers over there. I mentioned Texas intentionally because the the theme of the uh, Slump Buster pod this week surrounded the University of Texas losing to Kansas and what the game plan should be going forward. And in the aftermath of recording this, 
And one of the things we're going to talk about is resetting expectations and how you have to kind of catch lightning in a bottle to find that success in college sports again. One of the things we talk about on the podcast is Clemson being the lightning in a bottle program that won multiple national championships after being a middle of the road program. And Clemson didn't necessarily have the same resources as a LSU, USC, Texas, and now Florida, who fired Dan Mullen this weekend. We mentioned that on the Memes of the Weekend podcast, but I kind of wanted to bring it into focus here other than just laughing at them getting memed and shit-talked by Eli Drinkwitz in Missouri, which is a telltale sign that your time is coming up in Florida when Dan Mullen and the Gators are being shit-talked by Eli Drinkwitz. But anyways, what brought that up was Florida is another one of these programs, and this seems to be a real theme of the college football landscape this offseason, which is programs that have had success in the last 20 years. We've seen the success. We've seen them be Clemson. We've seen them be the mountaintop in college sports in the last 20 years. Those are the programs that find themselves sitting waiting to hire coaches with tons and tons of resources because you now have three jobs in the top 15 of resources available right now. You have, well, and soon to be a fourth one with the University of Miami. So you have the University of Miami, the University of Florida, Louisiana State, LSU, and USC all going to be available. Miami, for those who haven't been following the reporting around that, Miami, the athletic director got fired after refusing to engage in buyout talks with Manny Diaz following the Florida State loss, and then he lost his job and fought for his job and lost it. The new athletic director will replace Manny Diaz, and they're waiting until the end of the last game of the season to fire Manny Diaz because it saves them $2 million on his buyout. Similar to what Virginia Tech had the option to do, but they decided to just fire Justin Fuente two weeks early and start searching for the job. What Miami's basically doing is searching for their head coaching job while not firing Manny Diaz just so that Manny Diaz can not get an extra $2 million on his buyout. All of that to say, the University of Miami, the University of Florida, USC and LSU have all won national championships within the last 20 years. We can throw Texas into the mix too because Sarkeesian will probably get fired, not this year, but sometime in the near future. They're in the similar place that Florida State's in. We talked about that a couple weeks ago with Texas, about how they're basically in the Florida State purgatory, and we'll talk about it more with us with Juju Talk Sports in a sec. But what I wanted to focus in on those four programs specifically is we've seen them have the success in the past. We've seen them be Clemson, where they are, I'm sorry, be Alabama, be Ohio State, be Georgia, where they have the resources and they become a tier one or a tier two program that has won national championships within the last 20 years. In the case of Texas, they won a national championship. Florida won two. LSU has won two. USC almost won three in a row. So we've seen these programs get to that mountaintop and become the factory. And then those same teams have now fallen on hard times in the rotating cycle of college football where Alabama is an anomaly. It's not like we've seen anything like this for a sustained period of success. It works more like Clemson where you win two national championships, you have a five, six year run of dominance, and then you're Clemson this year and you're going to go play in the Outback Bowl. And you're going to go, you know, re-recruit and try and bring in five stars, but it's not looking great. 
and it might be a two-year setback. Time will tell on that based on their recruiting classes, but it, it could be a two-year setback that makes it so Clemson never gets back to the point they were at. Once it's over, you may never get back to that point of success again if you're Clemson, and Dabo Swinney is lining up the Alabama job, et cetera, et cetera. To be that, it took a lightning in a bottle chance for Clemson to get it. We've been talking about that the last few weeks. So if you're these programs, and now all of you are trying to hit lightning in the bottle in the same year, and you have Miami connected to Lane Kiffin, and you have Luke Fickle connected to Florida as Cincinnati gets ready to switch into the Big 12, and he maybe waits out for a better job, and James Franklin switching agents and angling for the USC jobs, and Mario Cristobal is being connected to these jobs, which would open up another top program at Oregon with Phil Knight-level money that makes them a top-20 program. Even if they're not the level of LSU or even USC, financially, Oregon is right there because of the Phil Knight money, etc., etc. All of that is going to make things really, really complicated for these programs that are really, really trying to dig themselves out of a hole. And Florida State is doing the same thing right now. And a lot of these legacy programs are trying to get back to even just a second or third tier level because Florida has really bottomed out. And LSU, not quite the same level of bottoming out, but they bottomed out. And Auburn's trying to do the same thing, even though Auburn was never really at the national prominence level. I know they did win a national championship with Cam Newton, but that was kind of just like a one, they caught lightning in a bottle by Cam Newton deciding to transfer there by maybe or maybe not being paid $250,000. If you don't know that story, Cam Newton, apparently his price tag was $250,000 to his father to have him go to the University of Auburn. That's kind of like an open secret at this point when he was transferring from Florida. All of that to say, a lot of teams are in a similar position, and so it adds on to this lovely conversation that you will hear on the Slump Buster podcast, the Slump Buster takeover with our boy Juju Talk Sports because it was a really, really good podcast that we did last week. And you can check out the entire archive of that over on the YouTube channel for the Slump Buster podcast. Kyle, you want to know an ultimate you're getting old storyline, an ultimate changing of the times headline? For the first time since 1999, the Staples Center will not be the Staples Center. It's getting renamed Crypto.com for $700 million. As obviously someone who has been around since 2001, how much of a shock was this to you? Especially someone that grew up a Lakers fan. Yeah, no, this is an interesting time. And one of the games we like to play on Take It Easy is uh, the Name the Stadium game. I'm sure we're going to play that tomorrow. Now, knowing that the uh, Crypto.com Arena is taking over for the Staples Center. First of all, I was surprised Staples was still willing to spend so much money on uh, on that arena sponsorship. Right? I feel like the uh, a brick and mortar the, retailer versus the yeah, Bitcoin it, empire that has started. Yeah, I feel like the, the office supply industry is not really doing so hot right now, but Staples was still uh, sponsoring the Staples Center, of course. But yeah, I, I think the changing name thing is interesting. It's obviously fun because we do end up following suit with the name changes over time. But this is a capitalist moment at its fest, which is if you can put a name on a stadium, you put a name on a stadium. If it's a cryptocurrency, if it's a talking stick resort arena, if it's a Smoothie King Center, or if it's a Vivint.Smart Home Arena, you put the uh, the names on there and it changes every now and then. And every 10 years, you kind of got to relearn 
learn the name or find some fun around it, like the Miami Marlins calling their stadium the Loan for Loan Depot. You can make fun with this because, yeah, stadium name changes are always interesting and silly because they're just who wants to pay the most for putting their name on a giant building. What is one that you haven't quite acquiesced to? Because obviously as a Giants fan, they just changed it to Oracle Ballpark. And I'm so used to AT&T. I still call it AT&T. And if you ask the previous generation, of course, they would call it SBC Ballpark, which is one that still, as much as you know, it's been changed, you still call it the old name. I will give you three of them, actually, that I do. So one of them is near and dear to my heart, which is, of course, uh, Qualcomm Stadium down in my hometown of San Diego, which most people don't know because the Chargers left about five years ago now, but uh, it is now called the San Diego County Credit Union Stadium. Qualcomm Stadium technically doesn't exist anymore. They just tore it down last year, but for the last five years, people have still been calling it Qualcomm. The Mariners ballpark, I still call Safeco Field, even though I believe it's T-Mobile now sponsors that one. And the Milwaukee Brewers have a stadium that my entire life was Miller Park, and it was Miller Park and Bernie Brewer would go down the slide and all of that. I, I believe it's now American Family Insurance Ballpark. If I remember correctly, it's something like that, but I haven't gotten used to that. I still call it Miller Park. Eventually I'll come around to it, but I haven't corrected that one yet. I think the, the Miami Heat Arena too is now a cryptocurrency as well. And then too, another name change we had earlier in the year was the Atlanta Stadium game named the Caesar Palace Stadium or whatever. NFL or? Yeah, uh, I believe it was like the Mercedes-Benz prior to getting renamed oh yeah caesar's yeah, palace the, um, which is odd for atlanta the, obviously the superdome in new orleans yeah. is now the caesar Superdome. oh it's the super the Both reason i got that Mercedes. mixed up is mercedes yeah yeah no the mercedes-benz superdome and the mercedes-benz stadium were two this was a joke between saints and falcons fans because saints and falcons fans hate each other but for about three years they had the same sponsor on both of their stadiums i think another one too that i always revert back to is i know the j progressive field for the uh cleveland guardians now see not only do you have to get used to the new name you have to get used to the new stadium names as well there oh i don't know the cleveland one yet i don't know what the stadium's name is ah this is gonna be Fun. I like the guessing game. I don't know what their stadium name is now. I still think it's progressive. See, we should just do a quiz. I know you mentioned you do a little bit of a game on Take It Easy, but we should do a quiz next week. Actually, screw it. We're going to plan it. Next week, we're going to come with a whole quiz. Name the team, name the ballpark. You down? Yes, absolutely. We've played this game multiple times. It's called Name That Stadium, where we can find wonderful names of different stadiums. Uh, I'll give you a quick one right now. Can you name the Tennessee Titans Stadium? Ooh, I don't even think I knew what it was beforehand, to be honest. Would you like me to give you three options here? Yeah, sure. Multiple choice. Multiple choice. So you have A, LP Field, B, Nissan Field, or C, State Farm Field. I think LP, what it used to be. So I'm going to say Nissan. That is correct. It is the Nissan uh, Nissan Field or Nissan Stadium, one of the two. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. Do you know what the Jaguars Stadium is now? Not at all. Off the top of my head, I'm probably the worst of it, especially when you mentioned AFC South Stadiums, man. Come on. Here, here is AFC a hint. South? It, is, it is a bank, if that makes it easier. Like TD Bank or something like that? Is TD a thing? Maybe I, I have know. it wrong, actually. What is the name of the Jaguars Stadium? now let's see if it no it is still the same one it is t-i-a-a bank stadium see i knew it had a t in there see i wouldn't even know if most of these banks existed if it wasn't for stadium naming to be honest it's 
always interesting when some obscure business or obscure company takes over the naming rights of these. I kind of wonder one day when we're going to get the Brazzers owning a stadium. They technically have the money. Oh, uh, this happened a little while ago in the heat. We're going to redo it. Bang Bros put up $10 million for the stadium naming rights and people made a design with the arena. Uh, This is a real thing that happened deep in the recesses of Twitter. This is not a joke. They actually tried to do this, but obviously the Miami Heat would not make that a thing. So this has been attempted, but I don't think we're in a place societally. I think uh, we we are a more sex positive society, but I don't think we're at that place yet. I don't think we're that sex positive yet. I mean, all things considered, you know, taking the family out to a game at the yard or something like that. And you're like going into Pornhub Stadium. I mean, there is sex positive, but then there's also, you know, that dividing line of family friendly atmosphere as family friendly as you can get when you have the racist drunken Boston yelling out slurs at the players. Can't wait for only fans to get in on this action too. We're getting to a place there. Cryptocurrencies are throwing all their money at it. Eventually, we'll get to a place where you have more obscure ones. This is the case in uh, in Sacramento because theirs is the Golden One Center. Um, if you had to guess what Golden One is, what do you think that is? Golden One, huh? I'm going to say something obscure like hemorrhoid cream. That is a little bit obscure. It's not that crazy. But the point is, it could be anything and you would still not have any idea outside of Sacramento what it is that that is because it is a local credit union. So if you are outside of the Sacramento area watching a Kings game on national television, which I've only seen one of those in my entire life. But if you're watching a Kings game on national television, you will see Golden One Center and have no idea what it is that they're selling. Where do these local credit unions just get all this dough? I mean, I get a net big national bank. But the local credit unions, do they really have that much capital just be naming stadiums? I mean, obviously, $700 million it took for them to buy the Staples Center. That one's, though, Los Angeles. Like, that's the you know, city with 11 million people and a national. It's the Lakers Stadium. Like, that one specifically costs a lot of money. I know the Golden One was, I believe, $8 million a year. And the only reason I know this is because some guy for the Kings got fired for like defrauding the Golden One credit union a while back. I know know the Petco Park in San Diego for the Padres was uh 15 million a year I believe so if you if you're in a smaller city I think you can get a naming rights deal for somewhere in the 10 to 15 million dollar range you know you know obviously not a uh, insignificant chunk of change but along with your naming rights deal you're also purchasing a certain amount of TV advertisements during the season on their games so like for Padres games there's a mandated certain number of ads for Petco that comes on on their TV every time. So that's also part of what you're paying for in the stadium naming rights deal if you're crypto.com. Which I can't wait till PETA same... bites out Petco. <laughs> is crypto.com the same company that had that weird commercial with Matt Damon just talking about something and you had no idea what he was selling? Am I remembering that correctly? I don't know. I don't watch a whole lot of television to be honest anymore to really keep up with all the advertisements. I think the only advertisements I really know anymore are ones that get shoved down my throat by YouTube or, of course, Super Bowl ads when they come out. That's fair. I think I've seen the Matt Damon one just on on like football games more than anything else. But it's just it's like Matt Damon talking about pioneers and taking the leap. And then at the end, you, you don't know what he's selling. And at the very end, it's just like buy crypto. <laughs> it's like, OK, did not know anything about what you were selling until the very end. But I assume it's it's the same company that just dropped seven hundred million dollars to rename the Staples Center. It seems to be crypto 
cryptocurrencies are throwing their money around like uh, very loosely here. <laughs> All right. Should we actually move on from the naming rights and move on to the actual product on the hardwood? I know you've been taking some comments recently in your power rankings update that I should ask you about here. So Bulls fans may have a case on you here. The number 11 team in your rankings, and yet they are 10 and 4 currently, the second team in the Eastern Conference. To run down your list here for any listeners that haven't got a chance to check out your rankings. So your top 10 teams are as follows. At 10, you have the Wizards. 9, you have the Jazz. Bucks at 8. Lakers at 7. 76ers at 6. Heat at 5. Suns at 4. Nuggets at 3. Nets at 2. And Warriors at 1, which I don't think anyone will have a problem with given their record. Yeah. So I would have the Miami Heat, 76ers, Nets, Bucks, and Wizards technically ahead of the Bulls. So that would put the Bulls as like the sixth best team in the Eastern Conference. And I think if you told Bulls fans at the start of the year, you'd be the sixth best team in the Eastern Conference. That would probably be a huge victory for the Chicago Bulls, considering where they were a couple of years ago and how they decided that instead of going through a rebuild, they were going to throw two years worth of draft picks, high draft picks, by the way. They gave up, I believe, the number eight pick in the draft this year to Orlando. Um, So give up a bunch of draft picks and $80 million a year in cap space to sign Lonzo Ball, to sign Alex Caruso, to sign DeMar DeRozan, to bring in Nikola Vukovic, who's obviously on a max extension. Uh, And obviously they have Zach Levine on a cheap contract for now, but they may or may not extend Levine this year. I don't know if Levine wants to stay or not. But all of that to say, I think if you had said if the Bulls are the five or the six seed in the East, that would have probably been a big victory for the Chicago Bulls. And the only reason the Bulls are not higher and the only reason the Wizards are not higher is because uh, I do not subscribe to the small sample size rule on this. I need a, a larger sample than 11 games of playing well to determine that a team is actually legitimately good. And teams like the Bucks, the Nets, the Lakers, even my Miami and even Philadelphia, we know they're good because we know the best player on the those teams are the 10 best players in the NBA. And sometimes the NBA is that simple that we know that team is good because over a long sample size, they're going to have that player. Now, in defense of the Chicago Bulls, DeMar DeRozan is the third leading scorer in the NBA right now. So DeMar DeRozan is having this career revitalization in his 30s and not playing in a Popovich offense. It's been a really interesting change there. And the Bulls surprisingly have still been a pretty good three-point shooting team. Like I'll give them credit for that. It's been surprising surprisingly good for them so far. But Bulls fans, if you keep this up long enough, it's not like I'm anti-Chicago Bulls. I know we're going to talk about the uh, the Cincinnati Bengals later, but this is kind of the same case where I'm like, yeah, the Bengals are doing better than I thought. The Bulls are doing better than I thought. But there's a line in between the Chicago Bulls are better than I thought and the Chicago Bulls are one of the elite teams in the NBA. Because if you stacked them up in a seven-game series against the Nets, even without Kyrie Irving, the Bucks, even as the Bucks have struggled out the gate. The 76ers, even without Ben, eh, maybe with Ben Simmons, maybe they would need Ben Simmons or the Miami Heat. I'm taking the Miami Heat in those series against the Chicago Bulls. So yeah, Bulls fans, I knew when I put you at 11, you would not be happy about it. I kind of regret putting you guys ahead of the Wizards or I'm sorry, putting the Wizards ahead of you because I really don't think the Wizards are that good. I think the Wizards have just had a really fluky start. I mean, 10 and three, you got to give the Wizards a little bit credit here and their biggest weakness 
last year was their defense and they are top five defense currently according to some metrics so in theory they fixed that and then uh, we know what how good Bradley Bill is a top 10 scorer in the NBA so I could see the argument for having the Wizards ahead of the Bulls I think one of the things I saw in the comments too was people coming out against how are the Bulls ahead of the Lakers and in your defense you sent me your rankings on Sunday night this was before they actually played on Monday big game by Alex Caruso and Lonzo Paul in their returns to Los Angeles with the Lakers though you have to admit that the case is starting to grow strong with some of these bad losses they have losses to the Timberwolves on their schedule they have losses to Oklahoma City some of their wins they've beaten the Rockets twice and barely gone by the Spurs I think that's where people are kind of looking at the Lakers it's I understand what you're saying it's we're going off reputation the Lakers are living off name seemingly in the rankings but based off what we've seen so far to this point in the season the Lakers at seven like where is your true confidence meter in that is it still at sky high at a 10 or have you started to waver a little especially after Monday's loss uh the Lakers thing I think is just that they're hurt like this is the part that seems strange is that they're losing these games because if you take LeBron James off the Lakers well that's a team that's you know Anthony Davis Russell Westbrook and a bunch of like really old role players so the Lakers case it feels explainable because if you put a team of Anthony Davis, Russell Westbrook, and a bunch of old people. That just feels like last year's Wizards, but with Anthony Davis being a slightly better big man option. So yeah, I I think the Lakers feel explainable for why it's bad. I think if it appeased the masses, I think the Lakers, if you just do it purely based on record, yeah, the Lakers are probably not a a top 10 team right now. You would probably take Utah or you'd probably take someone else in there. But I feel like doing the wild fluctuations doesn't serve anyone in terms of helping them be... I guess, a smarter sports fan in a way, or at least take something out of it. Because if one week the Lakers are three, the next week they're 16, and the week after that they're six, then I feel like we're not really learning anything there. I think that's why I, I try to avoid like dropping teams like more than eight spots ever in a single week. I think there are a few exceptions to that, like uh, the Pelicans. I did not realize in my initial rankings that Zion was not going to be playing for the majority of the season thus far. And so, you know, everything's falling apart in New Orleans now and that roster has been poorly constructed. So there there are a few examples here and there. Uh, the Cavaliers have a really good week. They'll jump a bunch. Phoenix wins eight in a row. They jumped like nine or ten spots or something like that. So there are a few exceptions in there. But doing the wild fluctuations, I don't think serves people well because at that point it's just, it's hard to actually gauge who's good and who's not. When we're pretty confident, especially in the NBA where having a star player matters so much, it does feel like well, we still know the Lakers are good when healthy and if they're not healthy now we can kind of like take that into account like oh yeah right now they technically don't have LeBron James and if you took LeBron James off the team now they'd probably lose to the Jazz they'd probably lose to the Suns they'd maybe lose to the Nuggets in the playoffs but it's all very complicated and convoluted and there's real concerns for all of these teams that are built around old guys about staying healthy especially the Nets and the Lakers those dudes need to need to stay healthy if those teams are going to compete and shockingly, the Warriors have been kind of the antithesis of that. Well, we do know that LeBron James is scheduled to come back sometime here in this next week. Now, your next rankings update would drop on Sunday, November 28th. Obviously, they're already 0-1 since your rankings update against the Bulls. Their next few games are Bucks, Celtics, Pistons, Knicks, Pacers, Kings, and then Pistons once again. So two Detroit Pistons stretches there. So I'm going to ask you both, one, what would it take for them to jump in the top five? What record would they need in that stretch? And also a record that they would need to jump outside of the top 10 
Uh, this is actually a pretty good question. I would say if the Lakers lose enough games to have a worse record than the Portland Trailblazers, they would probably fall out of the top 10. If they were to win most of the games you expect on, like if they lose one to the Kings, so be it. Like it happens over an NBA season. They lose a back-to-back somewhere in there in Detroit. It happens. But if if they win five, six of those eight, then they're probably going to stay where they are, I would guess. I'm also assuming that the Wizards and Bulls will start to fall off a bit because I don't believe that those teams are actually like super good or that Milwaukee will finally turn a corner or something weird like that. But I think it's somewhere in the middle. If the Lakers play the status quo and LeBron James comes back and they win, they'll probably stay there. But Lakers are in a weird place because it's like last year where they were the seven seed and they had to go through that wild card round and it was complicated. And it's the argument against what I say all the time, which is if you are a championship caliber team, the regular season doesn't matter at all in the NBA. But at the same time, you can't lose too many of them before you kind of look up and you're like, oh, where where are we at this point? Yeah, counter to that, obviously, we mentioned the Bulls are another team that we're talking about heavily on this podcast. Their schedule coming up, they face the Trailblazers, the Nuggets, the Knicks, Pacers, Rockets, Magic, and then the Heat prior to your next update. Uh, What record do they need in that stretch to jump back in the top 10? I think just to be better than the Wizards, right? Unless someone below them has a miraculous stretch of success. Because if I'm, I'm trying to remember now, I think if you go down further, like 13, 14, 15, or teams like the Grizzlies, Blazers are down there. I know the Cavs were 17 because Cavs fans were pissed that they went on a big win streak and I only jumped them up to 17. But those teams in the middle feel like teams we know aren't actually that good. Like the Clippers, we kind of know the Clippers aren't actually that good. I know they're fine, but... But without Kawhi Leonard, they're kind of just a middle of the road Western Conference playoff team. Or as we said in our initial season preview, a wild card hopeful. The Clippers are probably not going to go on a five, six game win streak and climb into the top of the hierarchy. So if you had to pin me down on it today, I think that win for the Bulls probably gets them into the top 10 anyways. And I would say, you know, sorry to the Wizards. And sure, the difference between 11 and 10 is was minuscule. But this is the thing about the NBA this year is there, there's like 10 really bad teams. Like I'm going through this every week. I'm like, there are 10 teams that really suck or like eight teams that really, really suck this year. Like the Pacers are, are mediocre, but they kind of suck. The Spurs are pretty mediocre. I know they've outperformed expectations this year, but the Spurs are headed for another missed playoff or exit in the first round or the wild card round, not the first round, the wild card round. Minnesota's not any good. Although I do love the Ant-Man. The Rockets aren't good. The Thunder aren't good. The Pistons aren't good. The Pelicans aren't good. Like there's a lot of bad teams this year. So if you are one of those teams at the top, there's going to be a lot of chances to accumulate wins by just beating up on some bad teams. I'll give a shout out to our colleague here because he was actually the one giving you shit about the Cavaliers here, Drew Hagenbaugh. Evan Mobley, I mean, hell, he's played better than Jason Tatum this year. So good for him. You know, Ricky Rubio. Evan obviously Mobley had that big one you great. were talking about a couple of weeks ago oh. too. Yeah, no, the, the Cavaliers have definitely overperformed. That's for sure. They are well and above their expectations this year. It obviously sucks, obviously, to be supporting a team that's underperformed and seeing the Cavaliers overperform when you see those playoff spots start to dry up. I've seen the conversation too happen. Has the East caught up to the West? Do we finally have pure conference balance? And it's starting to seem it because at least the top teams in the East are just as good as the top teams in the West in my mind. Yeah, the Western Conference just has like a 
slog of teams that are pretty good, but they, they have like one all-star. Like the Western Conference all-star team is going to be a very colorful array this year because it feels like everyone's going to have one all-star. Uh, the Western Conference, like three through 10 is just a slog of teams that each have one star player. Uh, the Eastern Conference has the two best teams, the, the Bucks and the Nets, obviously. Joel Embiid is, you know, one of the six best players in the NBA right now if you take out Kawhi Leonard because of injury. One of the six, seven best players in the league. Miami Heat have been really good this year. I know Tyler Hero is like a minus 800 favorite to win our uh, sixth man of the year at this point because he's averaging 24 points off the bench or something. Miami's been pretty good this year. They were the only team that added an all-star or all-star caliber player this offseason in Kyle Lowry. I guess the Bulls technically added DeRozan. So the, the Bulls and the Heat were the only teams that added all-star caliber players. So I would say, yeah, you got some parity there. I wouldn't panic if I were you on the Celtics side. The Colin Sexton has a torn meniscus. They'll fall. The, the Hornets are not actually that good. You guys are going to be fine. Not good. You guys are going to probably lose in the first round, but it's not going to be another like catastrophic season like last year. See, Jason's just got to stop settling for those fadeaway three-pointers. He actually has to start attacking the basket a little bit more because yeah, his shooting percentages are garbage. And this is a team that's second in the NBA in isolation plays without the isolation efficiency of obviously being the Brooklyn Nets. If you have Kevin Durant and James Harden on your team, that's forgivable. But when you have inconsistencies from Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, you can't have isolation as much as they do. Their best two-way scorer at this point is Al Horford. Al Horford is our best two-way player at the moment. If that doesn't frighten you as a Celtics fan, I don't know what exactly will. The last team I'll ask you about, though, before we move on, though, is I do see that the Mavericks are at 12. Now, the Mavericks in the last week, they have a quality win over the Nuggets. They've lost to the Heat and Bulls. So I guess I could kind of see where you're coming from here. But they are nine and four. They are third in the West. I will say that by a certain point, when you include the Bucks and Lakers, who have subpar records, some teams are going to get, you know, the they're going to get the boot a little bit on that one. Uh, I think the Mavericks have the same record as the 76ers and Heat, who I had, you know, up there pretty high. I think I just couldn't disrespect the Wizards and Bulls that much, like putting them both out of the top 10 in that way because the Mavericks are the exact same team as last year. That's pretty much what I'll say about them. They're literally the exact same team as last year, which is still pretty good because remember, if Luka doesn't have that neck back shoulder injury, they probably beat the Clippers in that first round playoff series and then go on to beat the Utah Jazz in the second round. So there's a scenario where Dallas almost made the conference finals last year and they're still bringing back the exact same team. Luka still has like a 35% usage rate this year. So they haven't given him enough support other than just Tim Hardaway, which is fine. But yeah, Mavericks are probably a top 10 team in the same way that the Bulls are probably a top 10 team, but you can only have 10 teams in the top 10, right? So yeah, Dallas is very good. Literally the exact same team as last year. They, they've changed nothing except bringing in a new head coach. They pretty much run the same offense, same style. It runs through Luka. They're going to be fine this year. Maybe they'll take the next step and win a playoff series. Okay, I got some quick baseball breaking news as I have Ooh. Justin Verlander signing a $25 million one-year deal with the Houston Astros. So we got a little bit of baseball news there. Justin Verlander sticking around for another year at Houston. And I only think it's more interesting 
interesting because I was hearing there's a little bit of drama behind the scenes with Justin Verlander being in Houston. Like his teammates didn't want him to throw out, I believe, a first pitch for either the ALCS or the World Series. There was both discussions of him throwing out the first pitch there. And reportedly, rather than being kind of like in the locker room, you know how most injured guys are being in the dugout with their teammates. Apparently there was um, some discontent with Justin Verlander kind of being aloof this season, kind of being away from the team while he was recovering from his late season Tommy John back in 2020, which it sucks the timing of that injury because it essentially took away two years away from Justin Verlander in his later part of his career. Adding him to the Houston Astros rotation in a season in which the Astros are going to have a lot of moving parts. What do you think of this does for their World Series chances next year? Well, I think it doesn't hurt, right? I think Justin Verlander's got something that he can give, considering the Astros were kind of like scrambling for starters after McCullers went out. I'm sure it helps, but how much it helps, I'm not sure. I was I was actually talking about this the other day with uh, Noah Syndergaard and with Jose Berrios, where it's like, both of these moves help indisputably. Like the Blue Jays now have a lockdown number two starter. They're paying $18 million a year to secure that number two starter role, uh, the same way they spent $25 million to secure the center field job in the leadoff spot with George Springer. Um, That's the strategy they're going to use. I don't know how much it helps, but it certainly doesn't hurt. It's just whether or not the money would be well spent towards something else, which is interesting given that the Carlos Correa situation still remains unresolved in Houston. Now, Houston may go over the luxury tax to keep everyone around. I don't know exactly what their game plan is for that, but it's interesting only because baseball is a a soft salary capped sport. And it's like having Justin Verlander obviously helps but how much does it help? We don't really know. Adding Noah Syndergaard helps the Angels, but how much will it help? History says not only bringing starting pitchers to the Angels, but starting pitchers with arm problems to the Angels usually doesn't work. See, it has not worked out really at all since Jared Weaver 10 years ago. So I don't know how much it helps, but I assume it helps some. The Verlander case is interesting though. Also, Brandon Belt, Texas native, signs his qualifying offer. So he will remain in San Francisco for $18 million next year. Speaking of Texas headlines, though, was I being hyperbolic when I started the petition to fire Steve Sarkeesian? Because I feel as though I feel a little bit justified after this past weekend, Kyle. Uh, so yeah, to, to take people behind the scenes, uh, I, I quietly petitioned to have the entire podcast be about the University of Texas losing to Kansas this week. If, if I had the creative control, I would have made the entire podcast about the University of nice. Texas losing to Kansas. <laughs> it is really one of the great things I love about college football, more specifically because it's that program that has the expectations and has the financial resources. It makes it that much better. Like if Kansas breaks the 56 game losing streak against TCU. It's funny. We can laugh at Gary Patterson, but it's not as perfect as it being Texas. Of all the programs, that is the best one you could have possibly chosen to have them be the team that loses to Kansas. So firing Sarkeesian, man, I said it last week. Remember we were talking about the four game losing streak. I was like, I think you get a pass all the way through, but as long as you don't lose to Kansas, if you lose to Kansas, someone's getting fired. I don't know who it is, but some Someone's getting fired at this point if you're Texas. And this is the nature of college football in the transfer portal era, because like I said, you're basically playing with like 70% of Tom Herman's players. And apparently Tom Herman wasn't good enough to keep his job. So if Tom Herman goes eight and four, I don't remember what they went last year. I think seven and three. And also those three losses, mind you, were all one possession games to Iowa State, to Oklahoma and to TCU. In the TCU game, they lost on a late fumble in the red zone. So at least you're closer. 
with Todd Herman. This year, you're getting blown out by Iowa State. This year, you're giving up three lead scores to Oklahoma, giving up leads to Baylor, giving up leads to Oklahoma State, getting beat by Kansas. By the way, I know you love some fun stats here. This is the first time in Big 12 history that a 30-point dog has won. First time in Big 12 history that has happened. And it's the first time since 1956 that Texas has been on a five-game losing streak. Do you know the last time that Kansas won a game at, what is it, Broyles? stadium or whatever it is in texas the last time they won in texas yeah do you know the last time they won in texas i believe i heard never it sounds crazy to me to hear never when you think about big 12 rivalries but yes never happened before never and steve sarkeesian credit to him for being the trailblazer to finally allow that to happen yes i understand if you want to but as a florida state maybe a cautionary message is that resources are not infinite um so you might be better served just letting sark ride it out for a few years and see if maybe he can recruit enough to turn it around. Because again, if you were just losing to Iowa with 100% of Tom Herman's players, now you're playing with 60% of Tom Herman's players and the, the occasional Sark guy. I know that one receiver that had like 28 targets is pretty good for Xavier Worthy. Oh yeah, 23 targets. The guy was a stud. But then you also have stuff like Dijon Robinson's out for the season. So it could only get worse. They might oh, finish yeah. legitimately with four wins. They could lose to West Virginia this week and they could lose to Kansas State next week. And then you're talking about a four and 18 that's not bowl eligible. I mean, bowl eligible is a minimum. 100%. You know, and that, here's the thing. When I look at Sark, I'm not just basing him off of his Texas history. I'm basing him off of everything. I'm basing him off being a mediocre coach at Washington. I'm basing him off being a mediocre coach at USC. I'm basing him off being a mediocre offensive coordinator for the Falcons. And then getting lucky that he gets a job at Alabama when you have Najee Harris, when you have Devontae Smith, Jalen Waddle, Mac Jones, who's looking like the most impressive rookie in the NFL currently. I, I look at that and like, how much credit do I give Steve Sarkeesian for that? To go one step further in the fact that Texas d- couldn't hire Urban Meyer because he turned down seven and a half million dollars. But by that point, they kind of got big eyes about a new coach and so decided that they didn't want Tom Herman anymore. You could take it a step farther. Yeah, see, that's the thing. I feel as though if you we're going to fire Todd Herman. It had to be for a legitimate upgrade, a verifiable upgrade, which Urban Meyer would have been. Steve Sarkeesian, could you honestly look at him and say there was that much degrees of separation between him and Todd Herman? That's the thing that I question in the decision-making. And I joked about that stat a couple weeks ago that the Texas University, the Texas Athletic Department is currently paying $20 million to coaches not currently on their payroll at this moment. And that's obviously terrible for an athletic department, but But I still think that even though you gave Stark a six-year deal, which by the way, what the hell are you doing giving him a six-year deal? I think that's just insult to injury there. I think the case for firing him is more this. You have a resume that Stark brought into the program. And I think of it like this. If you have a tumor, do you let the tumor get bigger or do you cut it out? And I kind of see Stark as not really something that you want to like kind of leave it to linger in the system. I think it could only do more damage over time. They have to replace 33 players, 33 players. I trust you to go in there and make that happen. I just have a hard time buying into that. And here's the problem. Here's the one problem I would say is just there's two high profile head coaching positions that are currently open outside of Texas that would take away from you in the coaching search. Obviously, USC and LSU, and both seem like more desirable jobs at this point in time than Texas. I mean, you're really taking, you're going to get the third fiddle in terms of choosing who your next coach would be. And out of those options, I'm going to throw out a name. I'm going to throw out a couple names here that I could see being legitimate replacements for 
Steve Sarkeesian if they decide to go in a different direction. So obviously there's the most high profile ones that you're going to at least throw out offers to. You're going to try and, hey, Urban, want to reconsider? Maybe? Come on. Jacksonville? Oh, no, there's no chance anymore. I know, but he burned that one. (laughs) You said he turned down 7 million, 20 million, just something, you know, and the interest of winning. Um, I wouldn't even mind like a Dan Mullins, to be honest. I know Dan Mullins is struggling right now at Florida, but at least he's shown he could win in the SEC, which I think is more than Sark has shown in his ability to win in the Pac-12 conference. I would even say, hey, Chris Peterson, want to come out of retirement? Think about it. I don't know. Hit him up. What about Gary Patterson, who just got fired from TCU? I know TCU, also in the Big 12, he was a winning coach, at least. He is a winning coach in the Big 12, and he didn't necessarily have the resources at TCU that he would have at Texas or even the UTSA coach trailer who's undefeated right now. That's at least an option. This is the interesting part, which is do you this? You guys are in what I like to call the Florida State conundrum which is you can cut the tumor away if you think Sark is a tumor. I I wouldn't go that far even still, but you can cut it away, but it's going to be expensive. And if you don't have insurance, which Texas has some, but they don't have full insurance, you're going to have to pay out of pocket to make it happen because I imagine Sark has an even larger buyout than Tom Herman at this point. So if you're gonna cut away the tumor, what happens when you don't have the same infinite resources like you used to? To use a a baseball example, you guys are the New York Yankees. Texas has the second largest athletic budget. It's larger than Ohio State, larger than Alabama, larger than that. But what happens when you pay a Jacoby Ellsbury? What happens when you pay a Giancarlo Stanton? What happens when you have to start running your team like the way the Kansas City Royals run their team? That changes the math a little bit on whether you want to make that kind of financial commitment because the resources don't last forever. And Florida State is the perfect example of that where they're paying like five different contracts. They're paying Willie Taggart's buyout at Oregon, Willie Taggart's contract, Willie Taggart's buyout at Florida State, Mike Norvell's contract, soon to be Mike Norvell's buyout at Florida State and whoever the next coach is going to be. Like that's the conundrum they're in is that the resources don't last forever. And so what happens when you have to start running your program like the way Boston College runs their program or the way Wake Forest runs their program can still succeed. It's just a lot harder to do so. That's kind of the conundrum Texas is in is what happens when you don't have those resources also at a time where you're about to go to a conference where there is infinite resources across the board. And Texas will start collecting some of that money. So maybe you could argue the SEC media deal they're about to get will help them out, but everyone gets the same point. So that means you're already starting from behind against the other SEC schools if a portion of your ESPN TV deal has to go to paying four different coaches, five different buyouts. This is the interesting conundrum here, which is do you wait for the revenue stream to come in a little bit? Do you give Sark a chance or do you cut bait now and potentially have to cut costs for the next couple of years? And this is an interesting conundrum because Florida State really fell hard. They had their Kansas loss to Jacksonville State earlier this year. And that was like their rock bottom. And they've turned a corner a little bit here. Like the calls for Mike Norvell to be fired have quieted a little bit. But with Florida State, you would say the arrow is pointing in the right direction. Whereas with Texas, you're saying the arrow is pointing in the wrong direction. The fact is you took 
took Todd Herman's players, whether you say 60% or 100% of them, and you were supposed to build around them. You were supposed to make this team stronger with what you had already. Instead, it seems like you're making it worse. And now you're going to have to go in and completely rebuild your roster around your guys, whatever your guys means. And I feel as though, is Sark the right guy for a complete roster overhaul? I don't think so. And you mentioned it. What is his buyout? $20.6 million as of today. That's a hefty sub for you and I. For a Texas Boosters program, I believe they raised Todd Herman's buyout in a day. Yeah, that's one ad spot of Lincoln cars for Matthew McConaughey. (laughs) Yeah, I I, I think if I saw it correctly, I I was looking at the USA Today numbers a little bit ago. I think the Texas program as a whole, just the athletic program on its own, generates like $90 million in revenue. And that doesn't even include donors who give money to the school. So, you know, it's convoluted. They'll probably go to the donors and ask for the money instead of taking it from the school revenue because they've budgeted stuff in. I think to the point of, is Tom Herman the guy to overhaul the roster? I think it takes time because if you had told me six weeks ago, is the Florida State job moving in the wrong direction or the right direction? I would have said it's it's headed towards rock bottom. And they've gone like four and three since then, which is not great, but it means it means they're not as bad as Syracuse, which is weird to talk about. But Florida State changed their expectations. Instead of trying to be ACC champion, they just tried to be not as bad as Syracuse and North Carolina State, and they'll get there eventually. But Texas is kind of in that weird place where 10 months ago, Stark was the guy to build the roster. And, he, and again, he has a few freshmen in here, but overwhelmingly, the bulk of his recruiting is going to come over the next two years. It's why college coaches never get fired within the first two years of being on the job. And I think that asking him to build a winning roster this quickly uh, is going to be impossible. Maybe it will succeed. Maybe it won't. Uh, I just don't think the sample size is there right now. And he's going to need at least two seasons to to build it out. At See, that but point. to go from seven and three to four and eight, I, I feel as though you have to own some of the blame there. You can't just dismiss it as these aren't my guys. They're your team. They are your team. You accepted this team whenever you took the job. And to say, are you a worse coach than Todd Herman? Because that's a legitimate question there. I mean, Todd Herman, hell, four bowl games, four appearances, four wins, um, at least had this team competitive. I, I think they just made a mistake. And I'm just advocating, I think, admitting you made a mistake and moving on before it hurts the program worse. That, that's kind of where I'm at because I don't think it's going to get better. I, I've said it. I made a bold proclamation that I don't foresee any future in any timeline in which Steve Sarkeesian has more than eight wins in the season at Texas. And that's why you hired him. So I know you yeah. talk about adjusting expectations, but still in the past, you have proven that you can take a Texas program to a national championship. I know it seems like an afterthought now, but that is the ceiling. I know the ceiling's dusty. It has cobwebs and needs to be mopped up a little bit here, but you can achieve that. That's not impossible. That's within the range of outcomes. And I don't think Steve Sarkeesian has shown anything in his history to suggest he's that guy. He had a premium program at USC and couldn't touch that. Of course, there was extra stuff going on in the background. I'm not going to plead ignorance to that. But you look at the early headlines coming out of obviously Texas. We've joked about Pole Assassin last week. We talk about the (laughs) Bo Davis story of that player recording him in the locker room shouting at the players. That's already some noise outside of the locker room that you didn't need in your first year as head coach when you have had a premium job like USC and had the outside noise disrupt your program on the field as well. So that's all the factors that I think is enough. Plus this quarterback thing, the quarterback is going to be ultimately what turns it around for Texas. And I think you've scared off Arch Manning. You're scared off pretty much all other quarterback prospects you can get. So you're going to have to roll with Casey Thompson or Hudson Card and bare booty ass cheeks. 
Yes, that is Hudson Card. And I am not looking forward to another year of having to watch him play. In fact, you look at the Kansas game, they spotted Kansas 14 points just by Hudson Card playing. A fumble to turn into a touchdown, a pick six, and then find you, too. The Kansas coach, Lance Leopold, has had less time with his program than Sark has had with his program at Texas. In fact, the quarterback there, I think he's only played about four games. In fact, the guy who caught the game-winning two-point conversion, that was his first game with an offensive snap. What does that tell you? <laughs> that says a lot to I, me. It's a 30-point dog. You shouldn't even be in that game. <sighs> To beat down three scores? That one, that one was bad. I will say, when I said that that Sark had a little pass this year, I think the expectation for me was like seven and five, middle of the pack in the Big 12. Like, that would have been fine. Bowl eligible, minimum. Yeah, minimum. he just didn't hit that expectation. And so I think it's not as bad as it seems because it has been really bad. Like, I'm not going to pretend like this is not really, really bad for Texas. Like, this has been an awful season so far. The fact that you just, you didn't even pull one of the upsets against Iowa State or Baylor or Oklahoma State or Oklahoma. The fact he couldn't even get one is rough, but it's still not the end of the world at all. Losing to Kansas feels like the end of the world. Even if it's really not the end of the world, it, it feels like it is. But to that point, if you cut bait now, you kind of just restart the process over again because it this feels like the worst it can get. Imagine being that, but not having the, the FU money to just move on from Sark if you wanted to, because then that's where things get worse is when you just keep spending money to get rid of it. I think the alternative is like, if you're going to fire Sark and Anyways, you could wait until you have more money to do so. The the counterpoint to that is you waste three years of the Texas program, um, just kind of like going in circles, trying to wait for all your mistakes to catch up to you, which is not fun. Like, especially when you have a program that has irrational expectations, it's not fun to have that happen. And that's the the bad part of college football is that once you get stuck in the in the mud a little bit, it's really, really hard to climb out. And talk to Michigan. They haven't won a Big Ten championship in 20 years. Go talk to Nebraska. They're absolutely terrible now because their their success was built on their reputation. And once the reputation went in the sand, they haven't been able to dig it out because who the hell wants to go live in Nebraska? See, but then, then, then I will counter with that then because you talk about Nebraska going to Lincoln, Nebraska. You talk about Michigan going to Ann Arbor. And then you talk about going to Texas. And as an Austin resident, maybe I'm a little bit biased, but Austin is one of those cities that, I mean, Silicon Valley's moving everything down here, practically. Everyone that is having any trouble in California, they're moving down here. College students, great town to be. 6th Street, Rainy Street, the Domain, Bar Districts, Fun, Rivers, Hiking. There's so many different things down here that this is a great spot to be in, that that's a recruiting pitch in itself. Now, I guess that comes down to what type of players are you appealing to? Do you run the risk of getting some players with less than reputable reputations there that aren't necessarily more interested in football, which I think is part of the problem that they've encountered at Texas. But that is a foot in the door in most high-end players' locker rooms. That part has mattered less, I think, than ever before in terms of the geographic location. Not that it doesn't matter like the way it used to. Like people don't want to live in Nebraska. Totally understandable. People don't want to go live in Missouri. That's understandable. I think it matters less only because one, every game is on national television now. So you don't have to worry about like, will your family be able to watch you play in that situation? Because there aren't like regional markets anymore. And also the best programs are in weird places. Alabama is a weird place to have a really strong program. Athens, Georgia, it's near 
near Atlanta, but it's a, it's a weird place to have a really strong college football program. Columbus, Ohio, weird place to have a strong program. Norman, Oklahoma, weird place to have a really strong program. Well, you can make up with that with a great coach. That's the thing there. Yes. If you had a great coach in a great area, then you are instantly a school to be reckoned with. If you had just a great coach at USC, then USC is automatically a national championship contender. Tuscaloosa benefits from having an amazing coach, the best coach in college football history. That's why Tuscaloosa, Alabama is a place to go because you know you could get to the pros, you could win national championships, and you're going to get plenty of recognition each and every year. Dabo Sweeney, what he's able to do getting kids to go out there to Death Valley. As long as you have that guy, and I don't think Sark is that guy. That's, again, going back to the main point, I don't think Sark is that guy. If you just give me someone who's good schematically, personable, and can sell Austin, can sell coming to the University of Texas, I think that you could do some serious damage with this program. It's it's a sleeping giant, I believe. This is an interesting question of expectation that I proposed on Wednesday's Take It Easy, which is, is Texas a program that can win a national championship anymore? Because there's only five to six programs that really can win a national championship in college football. If you want to count Notre Dame, that's fine too. But can Texas still be one of those places that consistently competes for national championships? Because they're obviously a long, long I, I'm going to go right out the gate. Consistency, I don't think is an expectation to have. You talk about having high expectations, consistently competing for national title, I'll renege on that. But I will say just being in the conversation is something that Texas needs to be able to be able to do. <sighs> This is interesting because they were there with Tom Herman, right? They won a Sugar Bowl with Tom Herman. Exactly. This is the confusing part. You're winning Sugar Bowls, you're at least in the thing. I think the overlying point, they made a mistake. If you were going to move off Todd Herman, you had to do it for a legitimate upgrade, a guy who can legitimately compete for a national title. They had the right idea offering Urban Meyer the contract, but they didn't succeed on the execution. And anytime you have to go for your second choice... There's very few times in history in which that has worked out for a program or a team or whatever. I think the only example of that being okay was when the Colts had to hire Frank Reich after Josh McDaniels backed out of him. That's the only time I think that I've legitimately seen that kind of stuff work out, picking your second choice. So I I think that this is just a problem, but I, I don't think it's unreasonable expectation because you have shown it. You have a city people want to come to. How the reason B. John Robbins is not entering the transfer portal is he knows there's power and staying in Austin and being a University of Texas running back. There's still a brand there. There still is an opportunity there to market yourself better than the majority of college football programs there is. It's just you need the right guy driving the ship. I think with Texas, the part is the resources, but resources don't give you everything. Like Texas A&M has a lot of money and they'll never compete at the highest level for national championships. No, you just but... need a CEO who can manage those resources. Yeah, and that'll get you good enough. It's The thing that's interesting with Texas is we've seen it before, right? This is the same thing with Michigan, where Michigan cannot compete for national championships anymore. That's just not, Michigan honestly was never really there, but Michigan's not a program that can be Alabama or can be Ohio State. It just, it just can't exist right now. I mean, Ohio, they can be better than Ohio State, but I'm saying what Ohio State is right now. Michigan can never be that. But at the same time, well, I guess to be fair, there are lucky cases like Clemson was a really lucky case. They got ridiculously lucky in getting there. And that's the thing that everyone holds up is like, we can do what Clemson did, where Clemson was basically Virginia Tech for 20 years and then got lucky and became a national dynasty. You have Michigan State right now who's competing. You have Cincinnati right now who's in the conversation. As much as we think 
think of Oklahoma as increasingly high above Texas, and I'm not one to disagree with that, given the results speak for themselves, who's got the better win-loss record in recent history. But you were in that game against Oklahoma. Turn that into a win. Maybe that changes around the course of history here. But if you could beat Oklahoma on a given year and just win out the rest of your schedule, suddenly you're in the top 10 conversation. Yeah. And this is the interesting part with Texas is we've seen it before, right? We've seen them become a national powerhouse. I don't know if that's possible anymore, if that was just one like fluke in time. This is the conversation Miami has all the time, which is, can we ever be what we once were? And the answer is probably no. Miami can never be what it was that Miami once was. And that's okay. You just adjust expectations and you're happy with making a cotton bowl or or making it to a playoff once every 10 years. And you're not competing for national championships, but you can still have teams that you'll come back 10, 15 years later and be like, man, that was really fun, wasn't it? We can celebrate this Sugar Bowl winning team with Sam Ellinger and whatever else it might be. I still even think Miami still has an opportunity to do it because I think geographically they're very gifted. I think that that still matters to people. You know, as far as like, if I'm going to choose where to go to college for the next three to four years, don't I want to be somewhere cool, somewhere that I'll enjoy myself? Yes, I know going to the pros is a big part of this equation, but if I can do both, if I can go to the pros and enjoy my time in college, why wouldn't I choose that over going to Desmond Iowa or going to, you know, South Bend, Indiana? <laughs> we can do we can do that too. How about Lubbock, Texas? That is an awful place to go, but well, that you're not even I mean, yes, they do occasionally send a guy to the pros, but you go to Lubbock, you know, you're also a bottom end Big 12 school who bare minimum, I guess you could say Texas beat them by 60 points, 50 points earlier in the year. They fired their head coach too. That was funny. They fired their head coach after being five and three. Which so is if I have like- to go to Lubbock, Texas, I can't make the pros and I'm going to get my ass kicked on Saturdays. I think that those are three things that I have to factor into the equation. If I can at least enjoy my place of residency where I'm living, have a legitimate opportunity to go into the pros and we can kick ass. I think that that's the thing. Now, the problem is Texas has one of those three. They have a good place to live. Going to the pros, hit or miss. They don't have as many pro guys as that they'd like to think they do. Obviously, they get like Xavier Worthy and B. John Robinson to the NFL. Those are two high-end talents that they could send in the next year, next couple of years. But then obviously, the, the third part of that equation is, can I win? Can I be in big-time, prime-time national games? And yeah. If they could just fit that, which I think if you have two of the three working in your favor, that's a good place to be. This is the difficult part, though, is like not everyone can get to that point, which is why you see Virginia Tech firing their coach after six years. Now, Virginia Tech's been kind of like piss poor average after one year where they made the Orange Bowl, but it's not good enough. Like they're not satisfied being seven and five or being fourth place in the ACC or whatever it is. Or uh, you could go the other way and and look at TCU with Gary Patterson. Gary Patterson, very quietly, they, they... didn't even like say it was retirement. Like they just straight fired him. Uh, they said mutually agreed to part ways, but that just means they fired him. And we looked it up. It was like, why is it that Gary Patterson was getting fired? He was the definition of that program. Well, then you look it up and it's fifth place, seventh place, fifth place, eighth place in the big 12. It's just that the winning dried up and even Gary Patterson was disposable. And so this is the nature of college football is if you're not delivering results, 
there are other options out there and programs have enough resources now where they can get away with firing coaches. But for a program like TCU, they never have national championship expectations because they've never won a national championship. TCU's best case scenario is, hell, I don't even know what their best case scenario is ever since they entered the Big 12 and entered the Power 5. It's a sugar bowl. It's it's to make the sugar bowl. It's to play play in the Big 12 championship and to make the sugar bowl, which if you play in the Big 12 championship, you at least have a a puncher's chance of making it to the college football playoff. Like you're probably not going to get it, but making the sugar bowl and winning the sugar bowl is a huge victory for TCU. They did it with Trayvon Boykin um, and then they haven't really done it since. There was the one year where they kind of got screwed out of the college football playoff and Ohio State got in over them, but that was a, you know, we were figuring out how the college football playoff worked at the time. That's another thing there too. Obviously the college football playoff, that changing is going to really impact how programs can recruit moving forward too. Yeah, I think this is true. And this is the interesting place where all of these programs reside. Like for example, Nebraska, they've won national championships before. Does Nebraska have national championship expectations? Absolutely not. Or at least they shouldn't. If their fans are, that's a little delusional. Same thing with Miami. Miami has national championship in their past, multiple national championships in their past. Do they have expectations now to win a national championship? No, and they probably shouldn't. This is just adjusting your expectations. And Texas has to ask themselves the same question that Florida State is asking themselves is, is respectable good enough? Because 12 months ago, the answer was no. Respectable being, you know, Tom Herman after his first year where he was, you know, going through the reshuffling, he was second place, tied for third, third place in the Big 12 and then got fired. And they decided we want something better than that. And they were going to use Urban Meyer to leverage that situation. And then Urban Meyer turned them down and they kind of just, you know, scrambled a little bit there. But even still, it's it's a decision that if it fails, like you think the Sark decision will, sets back your program years. It's setting back Florida State years. It's set back Miami years to hire Manny Diaz. And now they fired their athletic director at this point. It's really hard to get ahead in that game. It can. It can set you back years unless you hire the right guy. Because Ohio mm-hmm. State, obviously, Urban Meyer, first year comes in. I believe they make the playoffs in his first year. Nick Saban comes in. Yes, they go six and six, but instantly turn around the next year. And obviously, I know a lot of people that are supporting Sark are trying to point out the example. Oh, hey, Nick Saban went six and six in his first year at Alabama. Nick Saban also won a national title at LSU. Yeah, this is. And when you say it's about hiring the right guy, what I hear when that comes in is it's about getting lucky. It's about getting really, really lucky. And this is the difficult part is that the shining example you can point to is Clemson is that Clemson was a mediocre to above average program. They'd finished, you know, third, fourth, third, fourth, fifth in the ACC every year. And then they got Dabo Swinney, who, by the way, was the interim coach and wide receivers coach when he first got it. And when they hired Dabo Swinney as the full-time coach after he spent three games as the interim, they were pissed. They were pissed in Clemson that they hired the wide wide receivers coach as the head coach. They got ridiculously lucky that they got that guy as the head coach. And when Dabo leaves, the winning will stop at Clemson because it was just a lightning in the bottle, really, really lucky situation that Clemson had. And everyone points to that as the shining example. So the way you become that, if you're not Alabama, Oklahoma, Ohio State, even Georgia to a certain extent, or one of these programs that has a lot of money, the way you become the factory that 
churns out NFL prospects and because it becomes a national champion is by getting ridiculously lucky. The same way Texas got ridiculously lucky with Mac Brown and having Vince Young as their quarterback. It was a lightning in the bottle moment for the University of Texas. They got really, really lucky. And ever since then, they've been one of these programs that's been trying to find that luck again. I mean, they did get to a national championship that they lost to Alabama in 2010. So it's not that long ago. That's yeah, why I'm like, that's still that's still Mac Brown, though, right? I, I think that was still I Mac Brown. I believe coach. because obviously the Charlie Strong era was terrible. Yeah. So look, I take it a step further. You got Vince Young and then you got Colt McCoy as the perfect transition. The same way Dabo had Deshaun Watson in the perfect transition transition was uh, Trevor Lawrence. And that was like the perfect way to keep the dynasty rolling. I mean, see, I feel as though there's only so many programs that have won a national title in the past that you can truly eliminate from ever the possibility of winning a national title again. And most of them are Ivy League schools. I think that and every, Michigan and I, Michigan. <laughs> that's just hate, man. They can Michigan, make it this. Yeah, I, Michigan's okay. fine. Michigan's like yeah. Oklahoma State now. And that's but fine. again, that's- we, we talked about it. You know, they have their problems that they have to overcome because Ann Arbor is it a desirable location probably not you know they don't have the best recruiting pool so it's probably not the best place to necessarily win a national championship and then you talk about like obviously Nebraska in the early 90s the late 90s the early 2000s there they just had a good coach they had a really good coach so I, or I can point the other way, uh, Penn State with Joe Paterno, which obviously ended poorly, but through the 80s and 90s, that yeah, was just remembered the, the positive Joe. Pa. <laughs> yeah, he, no, he, great leader. And also, you know, didn't know how to handle sexual assault. But even still to do that in Happy Valley, Pennsylvania, was a lightning in the bottle moment for Penn State that they've they've tried to recapture it. It's why they keep James Franklin around. It's like it could be a lot worse. Penn State could be like one of these terrible programs in the Big Ten, like Nebraska. It could be a whole lot worse. It's just they're fine being the team that they are. They've adjusted expectations a bit. It's not like they see eight, nine wins and playing in the Citrus Bowl as a disappointment. It's like there's realistic expectations that they've adjusted to it. And Texas is kind of in the weird in between of that. See, I can see a scenario in which Penn State could if they just won the Big Ten one year, because we've seen that program have some good teams in recent years they've had generational talents walk through their door like a Saquon Barkley going back to like the 60s I mean I eliminate like Pittsburgh I eliminate eh, Birmingham Young BYU of course I'll probably eliminate them just because they <laughs> won't get given an opportunity even if it came down to it Colorado hey, BYU's in the big 12 now B- Georgia BYU's Tech. technically got a chance yeah technically but even that version of the big 12 you know is going to get disrespected when it comes down to yep, the no. committee it, like, again it, in the long for run. any of these programs would have to catch the same magic that they got which could come from the, the program leader, whether it's Bill McCartney or Tom Osborne yeah. or Bobby Bowden. Like maybe you catch that lightning in a bottle coach. Tennessee. And even if you do, mm. yeah, even if you do catch that, co- Tennessee, I think does actually have some level of chance. It's just, they got to get some of the the old voices at the, with empower that program out. But uh, I mean, you could argue the same thing for Texas. Yeah, but I mean, they're kind of like, I mean, schools in orange, they're kind of very similar to Austin in terms of, you know, Knoxville. I mean, another again, they were they were lightning in a bottle. And the reason like Philip Fulmer didn't leave Tennessee at the first chance he could was because he was from that school. Like, even if you catch lightning in a bottle, it's rare that the coach decides to stay at that program while they do it. And and Dabo's the exception to that. Like Dabo didn't choose a different job at Clemson because Clemson became somewhat of a destination job. Mel Tucker arrived at Colorado and immediately 
immediately left for Michigan State. And now Michigan State reportedly today is offering him a hundred million dollar extension to not go coach USC or LSU. And it's just, you have to catch that magic lightning in a bottle. And even then it might be stripped away from you because if Mel Tucker has the choice between Colorado and Michigan State, Colorado is not a destination job, which is really welcome to the world of San Diego State. Welcome to the world of Western Michigan. Welcome to these places where, yeah, you're not in the same game as all these people because any chance you get good, you will be poached by the better program. It sucks. Maybe you'll catch the magic lightning in a bottle, but if your entire fight of being a program is to catch a lightning in the bottle chance, you're going to be disappointed more often than not because it's you have to get really, really lucky to build a program in modern college football the way that these powerhouses and NFL factories have. Everyone wants to be Clemson if they don't have, you know, Alabama or Ohio State level of resources, but not everyone is going to be Clemson. In fact, almost everyone is not going to be Clemson. Not everyone is going to catch that lightning in a bottle. 